Chapters 33 and 34 of The Old Man in the Corner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Man in the Corner by Baroness Orzy. Chapter 33 The Living and the Dead. The man in the corner blinked across at Polly with his funny, mild blue eyes. No wonder you are puzzled he continued. So was everybody in the court that day, everyone save myself. I alone could see in my mind's eye that gruesome murder, such as it had been committed, with all its details, and above all its motive, and such as you will see it presently, when I place it all clearly before you. But before you see daylight in this strange case, I must plunge you into further darkness, in the same manner as the coroner and the jury were plunged, on the following day, the second day of that remarkable inquest. It had to be adjourned, since the appearance of Mr. Timothy Beddingfield had now become of vital importance. The public had come to regard his absence from Birmingham at this critical moment as decidedly remarkable, to say the least of it, and all those who did not know the lawyer by sight wished to see him in his Inverness cape and Glengarry cap, such as he had appeared before the several witnesses on the night of the awful murder. When the coroner and jury were seated, the first piece of information which the police placed before them was the astounding statement that Mr. Timothy Beddingfield's whereabouts had not been ascertained, though it was confidently expected that he had not gone far and could easily be traced. There was a witness present who, the police thought, might throw some light as to the lawyer's probable destination, for obviously he had left Birmingham directly after his interview with the deceased. This witness was Mrs. Higgins, who was Mr. Beddingfield's housekeeper. She stated that her master was in the constant habit, especially latterly, of going up to London on business. He usually left by a late evening train on those occasions, and mostly was only absent thirty-six hours. He kept a portmanteau always ready packed for the purpose, for he often left at a few moments' notice. Mrs. Higgins added that her master stayed at the Great Western Hotel in London, for it was there that she was instructed to wire if anything urgent required his presence back in Birmingham. On the night of the fourteenth, she continued, at nine o'clock or thereabouts, a messenger came to the door with the master's card and said that he was instructed to fetch Mr. Beddingfield's portmanteau, and then to meet him at the station in time to catch the 9.35 p.m. up train. I gave him the portmanteau, of course, as he had brought the card, and I had no idea there could be anything wrong, but since then I have heard nothing of my master, and I don't know when he will return. Questioned by the coroner, she added that Mr. Beddingfield had never stayed away quite so long without having his letters forwarded to him. There was a large pile waiting for him now, she had written to the Great Western Hotel, London, asking what she should do about the letters, but received no reply. She did not know the messenger by sight who had called for the portmanteau. Once or twice before, Mr. Beddington had sent for his things in that manner, when he had been dining out. Mr. Beddingfield certainly wore his Inverness cape over his dress clothes when he went out at about six o'clock in the afternoon. He also wore a Glengarry cap. The messenger had so far not yet been found, and from this point, namely, the sending for the portmanteau, all traces of Mr. Timothy Beddingfield seemed to have been lost. Whether he went up to London by that 9.35 train or not could not be definitely ascertained. The police had questioned at least a dozen porters at the railway, as well as ticket collectors, but no one had any special recollection of a gentleman in an Inverness cape and Glengarry cap, a costume worn by more than one first-class passenger on a cold night in September. There was the hitch, you see. It all lay in this. Mr. Timothy Beddingfield, the lawyer, had undoubtedly made himself scarce. He was last seen in company with the deceased, 
and wearing an Inverness cape and Glengarry cap. Two or three witnesses saw him leaving the hotel at about 9.15. Then the messenger calls at the lawyer's house for the portmanteau, after which Mr. Timothy Beddingfield seems to vanish into thin air. But, and that is a great but, the night porter at the castle seems to have seen someone wearing the momentous Inverness and Glengarry half an hour or so later on, and going up to the deceased room, where he stayed about a quarter of an hour. Undoubtedly, you will say, as every one said to themselves that day, after the night porter and Mrs. Higgins had been heard, that there was a very ugly and very black finger which pointed unpleasantly at Mr. Timothy Beddingfield, especially as that gentleman, for some reason which still required an explanation, was not there to put matters right for himself. But there was just one little thing, a mere trifle, perhaps, which neither the coroner nor the jury dared to overlook, though, strictly speaking, it was not evidence. You will remember that when the night porter was asked if he could, among the persons present in court, recognize the Honorable Robert de Genville's belated visitor, everyone had noticed his hesitation, and marked that the man's eyes had rested doubtingly upon the face and figure of the young Earl of Brocklesby. Now if that belated visitor had been Mr. Timothy Beddingfield, tall, lean, dry as dust, with a bird-like beak and clean-shaven chin, no one could for a moment have mistaken his face, even if they only saw it very casually, and recollected it but very dimly, with that of young Lord Brocklesby, who was florid and rather short. The only point in common between them was their Saxon hair. "'You see that it was a curious point, don't you?' added the man in the corner, who now had become so excited that his fingers worked like long, thin tentacles round and round his bit of string." It weighed very heavily in favor of Timothy Beddingfield, added to which you must also remember that, as far as he was concerned, the Honorable Robert de Genville was to him the goose with the golden eggs. The de Genville peerage case had brought Beddingfield's name in great prominence. With the death of the claimant all hopes of prolonging the litigation came to an end. There was a total lack of motive as far as Beddingfield was concerned. "'Not so with the Earl of Brocklesby,' said Polly and I've often maintained. What, he interrupted, that the Earl of Brocklesby changed clothes with Beddingfield in order more conveniently to murder his own brother? Where and when could the exchange of costume have been effected, considering that the Inverness cape and Glengarry cap were in the hall of the Castle Hotel at 9.15, and at that hour and until ten o'clock, Lord Brocklesby was at the Grand Hotel, finishing dinner with some friends? That was subsequently proved, remember, and also that he was back at Brocklesby Castle, which is seven miles from Birmingham, at eleven o'clock sharp. Now the visit of the individual in the Glengarry occurred some time after ten p.m. "'Then there was the disappearance of Beddingfield,' said the girl musingly. "'That certainly points very strongly to him. He was a man in good practice, I believe, and fairly well known.' "'And has never been heard of from that day to this,' concluded the old scarecrow with a chuckle. "'No wonder you are puzzled. The police are quite baffled, and still are, for a matter of fact.' and yet see how simple it is. Only the police would not look further than these two men, Lord Brocklesby with a strong motive, and the night porter's hesitation against him, and Beddingfield without a motive, but with strong circumstantial evidence, and his own disappearance as condemnatory signs. If only they would look at the case as I did, and think a little bit about the dead as well as about the living. If they had remembered that peerage case, the Honourable Robert's debts, his last straw which proved a futile claim. Only that very day the Earl of Brocklesby had, by quietly showing the original ancient document to his brother, persuaded him how futile were all his hopes. 
Who knows how many were the debts contracted, the promises made, the money borrowed and obtained on the strength of that claim which was mere romance. Ahead, nothing but ruin, enmity with his brother, his marriage probably broken off, a wasted life, in fact. Is it small wonder that though ill-feeling against the Earl of Brocklesby may have been deep, there was hatred, bitter deadly hatred, against the man who with false promises had led him into so hopeless a quagmire? Probably the Honourable Robert owed a great deal of money to Beddingfield, which the latter hoped to recoup at usurious interest, with threats of scandal and what not. Think of all that, he added, and then tell me if you believe that a stronger motive for the murder of such an enemy could well be found. But what you suggest is impossible, said Polly, aghast. Allow me, he said. It is more than possible. It is very easy and simple. The two men were alone together in the Honourable Robert de Genville's room after dinner. You, as representing the public, and the police, say that Beddingfield went away and returned half an hour later in order to kill his client. I say that it was the lawyer who was murdered at nine o'clock that evening, and that Robert de Genville, the ruined man, the hopeless bankrupt, was the assassin. Then— Yes, of course, now you remember, for I have put you on the track. The face and the body were so battered and bruised that they were past recognition. Both men were of equal height. The hair, which alone could not be disfigured or obliterated, was in both men similar in color. Then the murderer proceeds to dress his victim in his own clothes. With the utmost care he places his own rings on the fingers of the dead man, his own watch in the pocket, a gruesome task, but an important one, and it is thoroughly well done. Then he himself puts on the clothes of his victim, with, finally, the Inverness cape and Glengarry, and when the hall is full of visitors he slips out unperceived. He sends the messenger for Beddingfield's portmanteau, and starts off by the night express. "'But then his visit at the Castle Hotel at ten o'clock,' she urged. "'How dangerous!' "'Dangerous? Yes, but oh, how clever! You see, he was the Earl of Brocklesby's twin brother, and twin brothers are always somewhat alike. He wished to appear dead, murdered by someone, he cared not whom, but what he did care about was to throw clouds of dust in the eyes of the police, and he succeeded with a vengeance. Perhaps, who knows, he wished to assure himself that he had forgotten nothing in the mise-en-scene, that the body, battered and bruised, past all semblance of any human shape save for its clothes, really would appear to everyone as that of the Honourable Robert de Genville, while the latter disappeared for ever from the old world and started life again in the new. Then you must always reckon with the practically invariable rule that a murderer always revisits, if only once, the scene of his crime. Two years have elapsed since the crime. No trace of Timothy Beddingfield, the lawyer, has ever been found, and I can assure you that it never will be, for his plebeian body lies buried in the aristocratic family vault of the Earl of Brocklesby. He was gone before Polly could say another word. The faces of Timothy Beddingfield, of the Earl of Brocklesby, of the Honourable Robert de Genville, seemed to dance before her eyes and to mock her for the hopeless bewilderment in which she found herself plunged because of them. Then all the faces vanished, or rather were merged into one long, thin, bird-like one, with bone-rimmed spectacles on the top of its beak, and a wide, rude grin beneath it, and still puzzled, still doubtful, the young girl, too, paid for her scanty luncheon and went her way. Chapter 34 The Mysterious Death in Percy Street Miss Polly Burton had had many an argument with Mr. Robert Frobisher about that old man in the corner, who seemed far more interesting and deucedly more mysterious than any of the crimes over which he philosophized. 
Dick thought, moreover, that Miss Polly spent more of her leisure time now in that ABC shop than she had done in his own company before, and told her so, with that delightful air of sheepish sulkiness which the male creature invariably wears when he feels jealous and won't admit it. Polly liked Dick to be jealous, but she liked that old scarecrow in the ABC shop very much, too, and though she made sundry vague promises from time to time to Mr. Richard Frobisher, she nevertheless drifted back instinctively day after day to the tea-shop in Norfolk Street, Strand, and stayed there sipping coffee for as long as the man in the corner chose to talk. On this particular afternoon she went to the ABC shop with a fixed purpose, that of making him give her his views of Mrs. Owen's mysterious death in Percy Street. The facts had interested and puzzled her. She had had countless arguments with Mr. Richard Frobisher as to the three great possible solutions of the puzzle—accident, suicide, murder. "'Undoubtedly neither accident nor suicide,' he said dryly. Polly was not aware that she had spoken. What an uncanny habit that creature had of reading her thoughts! "'You incline to the idea, then, that Mrs. Owen was murdered. Do you know by whom?' He laughed, and drew forth the piece of string he always fidgeted with when unravelling some mystery. "'You would like to know who murdered that old woman?' he asked at last. "'I would like to hear your views on the subject,' Polly replied. "'I have no views,' he said dryly. "'No one can know who murdered the woman, since no one ever saw the person who did it. No one can give the faintest description of the mysterious man who alone could have committed that clever deed, and the police are playing a game of blind man's bluff. But you must have formed some theory of your own,' she persisted. It annoyed her that the funny creature was obstinate about this point, and she tried to nettle his vanity. "'I suppose that, as a matter of fact, your original remark that there are no such things as mysteries does not apply universally. There is a mystery, that of the death in Percy Street, and you, like the police, are unable to fathom it.' He pulled up his eyebrows and looked at her for a minute or two. "'Confess that that murder was one of the cleverest bits of work accomplished outside Russian diplomacy,' he said with a nervous laugh. I must say that were I the judge, called upon to pronounce sentence of death on the man who conceived that murder, I could not bring myself to do it. I would politely request the gentleman to enter our foreign office. We have need of such men. The whole mise-en-scene was truly artistic, worthy of its milieu, the Rubens Studios in Percy Street, Tottenham Court Road. Have you ever noticed them? They are only studios by name, and are merely a set of rooms in a corner house, with the windows slightly enlarged, and the rents charged accordingly in consideration of that additional five inches of smoky daylight filtering through dusty windows. On the ground floor there is the order office of some stained-glass works, with a workshop in the rear, and on the first floor landing a small room allotted to the caretaker, with gas, coal, and fifteen shillings a week, for which princely income she is deputed to keep tidy and clean the general aspect of the house. Mrs. Owen, who was the caretaker there, was a quiet, respectable woman, who eked out her scanty wages by sundry, mostly very meagre tips, doled out to her by impecunious artists in exchange for promiscuous domestic services in and about the respective studios. But if Mrs. Owen's earnings were not large, they were very regular, and she had no fastidious tastes. She and her cockatoo lived on her wages, and all the tips added up and never spent year after year went to swell a very comfortable little account at interest in the Birkbeck Bank. This little account had mounted up to a very tidy sum, and the thrifty widow, or old maid, no one ever knew which she was, was generally referred to by the young artists of the Rubens Studios as a lady of means. But this is a digression. No one slept on the premises except Mrs. Owen and her cockatoo. The rule was that, one by one, as the tenants left their rooms in the evening, they took their respective keys to the caretaker's room. 
She would then, in the early morning, tidy and dust the studios and the office downstairs, lay the fire, and carry up coals. The foreman of the glassworks was the first to arrive in the morning. He had a latch-key and let himself in, after which it was the custom of the house that he should leave the street door open for the benefit of the other tenants and their visitors. Usually, when he came at about nine o'clock, he found Mrs. Owen busy about the house doing her work, and he had often a brief chat with her about the weather, but this particular morning of February 2nd he neither saw nor heard her. However, as the shop had been tidied and the fire laid, he surmised that Mrs. Owen had finished her work earlier than usual, and thought no more about it. One by one the tenants of the studios turned up, and the day sped on without anyone's attention being drawn noticeably to the fact that the caretaker had not appeared upon the scene. It had been a bitterly cold night, and the day was even worse. A cutting, northeasterly gale was blowing. There had been a great deal of snow during the night, which lay quite thick on the ground, and at five o'clock in the afternoon, when the last glimmer of pale winter daylight had disappeared, the confraternity of the brush put pallet and easel aside and prepared to go home. The first to leave was Mr. Charles Pitt. He locked up his studio and, as usual, took his key into the caretaker's room. He had just opened the door when an icy blast literally struck him in the face. Both the windows were wide open, and the snow and sleet were beating thickly into the room, forming already a white carpet upon the floor. The room was in semi-obscurity, and at first Mr. Pitt saw nothing, but instinctively realizing that something was wrong, he lit a match, and saw before him the spectacle of that awful and mysterious tragedy which has ever since puzzled both police and public. On the floor, already half-covered by the drifting snow, lay the body of Mrs. Owen, face downwards, in a nightgown, with feet and ankles bare, and these in her hands were of a deep purple color, whilst in a corner of the room, huddled up with the cold, the body of the cockatoo lay, stark and stiff. End of chapters 33 and 34